Zone Podcast. We lead the charge on site. There's great career opportunities in construction, whether you're in the field or in the office. I am punk. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the work zone. I'm Riley. And I'm Kelsey. Happy May. Happy May. <laughs> the sun is, is finally coming out. I love it. Yeah, I can I can feel my seasonal depression just melting off me. I know. It's so great to go to work when it's not completely dark out and then leave and it's still light out. Yes. It's the best thing ever. I, I kind of forgot what it was like. I, I do this every year. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I walk to the ferry every morning. So not getting drenched and being able to see the road has just been great for me. It's a bonus. Yeah. Wow. Well, coming up is safety week. Yes. First week of May. Yeah. So um, this podcast is is great piece to uh, coincide with safety week. I think all the, the topics are really focused around mental health this yes. year. And it's something we don't talk about very often. So I'm, I'm pretty excited that that it is, is a big part of safety week and, and that we're able to talk about it now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's so important, especially after the past couple of years. Yes. It's been more normalized, which has been a really great thing. Yeah. And it's probably needed more than anything now. Yeah. So it affected everyone, mm-hmm. industry and out of our industry. Yeah. I actually heard that, you know, when you're going through something so drastically different, you don't really feel the repercussions until after. And so a lot of people are really starting to feel the weight of everything that went on the past couple of years now because they're really taking it on and able to take a breath. It's a great time to talk about mental health. Yeah. So we're really excited to have a mental health expert with us. Yes, our special guest this week. Mandy Keim is the Director of Safety at the AGC of Washington. She is an advocate for mental health and suicide prevention, particularly in the construction industry. Along with speaking engagements to spread awareness, she provides teams with resources to support mental health. Mandy is doing extraordinary things, and we cannot be more excited to have her on the podcast today. Welcome, Mandy. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Yeah, we're real excited for this. So, so tell us about yourself and um, you know what you do with AGC and the industry and, and how you got here. So I am um, probably most known in, in this line of work for the mental health advocacy that I've been doing over the last handful of years. But I've actually been the director of safety for AGC of Washington for over 20 years, wow. or at least worked in and around AGC for 20 years. And so I've got a lot of experience in working with contractors and helping them build their safety culture, which that work in talking about safety culture and just how we treat people has really parlayed into a lot of work with mental health. It has parlayed into work with diversity, equity, and inclusion, including AGC of Washington's culture of care program, and really spurred a lot of conversations about psychological safety, which definitely Uh, has big impacts on worker mental health. So that's a little bit about what I do for work. I do have a background in safety and health. I have two bachelor's degrees from Central Washington University. One of them happens to be in safety and health. And just this last summer, I completed my master's degree in safety and health management, where I spent my entire research thesis digging really, really deep into mental health and suicide prevention for construction. And mainly the the catalyst for that was knowing the statistics of suicide in construction and the mental health challenges and, and drug and substance abuse issues that we have in our industry and knowing that there wasn't enough published data for us to do a good job of protecting our people. And so um, what a great opportunity I had to be able to use my my time studying and getting my master's actually doing something to benefit the industry. So 
Uh, that work actually helped me publish an eight-part best practices guide for construction employers that's literally plug and play to really help employers with addressing a very uncomfortable subject in a way that feels natural, that weaves into their existing safety and health programming. So you don't have to be a mental health professional to be able to have these conversations. You don't need to you know, have a psychology degree to open the door and reduce stigma and normalize some conversations and, and make a difference. Construction has a long history of looking out for one another and being very close-knit and very family-oriented, and this is just one area where we could improve, and so I'm really excited not only to be getting to have these conversations, but really excited that Northwest has jumped in and opened the door for this conversation to to be expanded within their ranks and, and share it with the industry. It's just really exciting to be a part of. That's one of my favorite things about you and your presentation. You talked to some Northwest people a few months ago, and... I loved how tangible your advice was and like these are steps to take and here's a resource to help and I think that that is so important because it makes it so much easier and you talked a lot about like the barriers that people feel of just not knowing what to do when they feel a certain way. So I'm really excited for you to share with our listeners some of those resources. And I think too people say that it's hard to talk about mental health and that's true but it isn't because we don't want to talk about it. It's because we don't necessarily have the resources or the confidence to have those conversations. And so if we can just make it that much easier for people to have that conversation, our hearts, like I said, 20 years in this business, I have seen the hearts of the people that work in our industry. We've got some incredible people. They want to do the right thing and they want to look out for one another, but this is kind of uncharted territory. So let's just help people navigate that conversation and help people get resources so we can get them help before they're in crisis. So before we jump into that in more detail, Riley and I always ask our guests, why do you work safe? Being a safety director by trade, I had to be a little bit of an overachiever on this question. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got two answers as to why I work safe. The first one is I'm a mom of four and their world doesn't work unless I'm here. They need a mom and they need um, me to be there and be whole and healthy. And that goes not just to my physical safety, right? Then my second one is, you know, after a couple decades in this business, I have had the unfortunate situation of having to respond to fatality accidents. I've been in the emergency room, waiting room with family members holding them while they cry and find out that their loved one isn't coming home. I have uh, responded to some of the more notable fatality accidents in our region. That changes you. That changes your future. And you think about everyone will say, oh, the poor family, their friends, but they don't really think about the indelible mark that's left on the people that were on site that day and what they have to carry with them for the rest of their lives. And, you know, finishing a project where something really tragic has happened, that's a daily, if not hourly reminder of something really horrific happening. Uh, If we can prevent those things from happening, I think that we all get better from that. And hopefully less and less of us will have to be involved with the downside of not working safe. And what about the construction industry attracted you to uh, to it? What, what caused that? Um, it's kind of funny. I went to school thinking that I was going to end up in agriculture because I got two bachelor's degrees, one in foreign language and one in safety. And I thought, oh, this will be perfect for agriculture. 
And uh, I graduated at a time where our economy just wasn't supportive of, of that at all. But my grandfather had worked construction and my dad was actually the corporate safety director for granite construction for over 30 years. And so I had just enough knowledge of construction and just enough experience with it to know that not only is it fun and exciting and no two days are alike, which is perfect for my type of brain. Like I can't possibly live the same life every day, like Groundhog Day. But also I am just blown away by the ingenuity and the problem solving skills that we have in our industry. I'm blown away by the people that wake up every day and get to, you know, I mean, sure, we've got commutes and crazy hours and all the things that go along with it. But these these folks wake up every day and they get to go build our communities. It's not, you know, you're not just, you know, clicking away on a computer. You're you are literally building our world. You know, I have gotten to go a lot of great places in this career. I've got to, you know, go in tunnels and skyscrapers and hang off swing stages and do all sorts of crazy fun stuff. But at the end of the day, um, I think that a lot of us in this industry really take a point of pride in being able to drive through our communities and point stuff out and be like, I was a part of that project. I was there. I, I helped build that. Just the sheer problem solving and ingenuity skill set that is involved in the work that we do that, you know, largely our communities underestimate the construction industry. So not only am I thrilled to get to do it, but I, I love talking positively about construction and trying to encourage young folks into a career in our industry because it's very rewarding. You get to make memories and at the end of the day, you have this tangible thing of saying, I did this today. You know, you can see the work progression, whereas, you know, some of the other jobs that folks might do, you don't really get that tangible of like, I literally built this or I literally made this today. So I I think that's not only what attracted me, but what's kept me in this industry because you know, it wasn't, wasn't my first choice. It wasn't what I was going to do, but I'm, I'm here and I'm staying. Yeah. And I think one of the most interesting things in going off what you just talked about, we work in an industry that's so inherently dangerous and we accept so much physical risk, but when it comes to the vulnerability of uh, mental danger, it's not something that uh, I, you know, we're not comfortable with. I certainly am, am not comfortable with that. And so I never talk about it. Yeah. And culturally, I mean, if you think about construction, Um, I jokingly say often there's two acceptable emotions in construction. You've got like your, your average, like everything's fine, not even happy per se, just like fine, meh. And then you have angry and those are really the only two emotions that you see expressed a lot in construction um, specifically. And so, yeah, being able to actually talk about the soft skills, um, the heart stuff, um, it's in there. I've worked in this industry long enough. I've met enough people in this industry, even the most gruff and bristled people that we work with have something, some soft spot that Mm -hmm. is a trigger for them. And so finding that, finding that motivator that will connect them to conversations like this and, and allow them to open up a little bit. And also, you know, make it safer for them to feel like they can be their authentic self as well while mm-hmm. they're respecting other people on the job and, and encouraging them to do that as well. So going off of that, why is mental health and suicide prevention really important to talk about? And how did you start to normalize this as a part of your career? I was actually approached by a member a number of years ago, um, their safety director, uh, Cal Byer. Cal was the director over there at Lakeside Industries. And he approached me because AGC had safety forums and we were constantly talking about 
new and upcoming subject matter with regard to construction safety. And he was like, hey, you know, we talk a lot about physical safety, but did you know that the suicide rate in construction is six times the national average? Wow. And I, I was kind of floored by that. And as a mom of multiples, you know, A, it struck me in the sense that I can't imagine, you know, losing one of my kids or my kids losing me because I wasn't taking care of my mental health. But also in the community of parents of multiples, there is a, a higher rate of suicide as well. And that higher rate of suicide correlates mostly to the fathers of multiples. And that was a scary prospect to me. And so the more Cal and I talked back and forth, I was like, yeah, we need to do a forum on this. And the more informed I got, the more inspired I was that, you know, maybe because of who I am, you know, being a mom and being fairly empathetic human being, that I can comfortably talk about this. And that's what needs to happen. But then also... I'm in a unique position at AGC. We represent 600 employers in this state, and I'm in a unique position to be able to have these conversations with hundreds of employers and impact hundreds of workplaces rather than just one workplace, rather than just one set of employees. I get the opportunity to have these conversations with a lot of different employers and industry partners and other associations. And so that's when I really felt like, okay, this is, this is, something I can really run with and make an impact and maybe help shift some of the discussion. And as somebody who has suffered with mental health issues in the past and, you know, still actively taking care of myself and my mental health today, I think that it is more authentic to have someone like myself come and have these conversations, someone who knows our industry, than having maybe a psychologist or a medical health professional come and talk to us about the, the clinical merits of it. But really, like, let's dig into the heart work and let's dig into what we can do on the job. And I've got 20 years of experience in helping contractors navigate safety and health regulations. So that's really not a stretch to take those same principles and apply them to mental health. It's just that jump from, you know, this comes out of a rule book instead of, you know, this comes from a place of, of genuine care and concern for our industry and, uh, and our workforce. Yeah, and, and, you know, you talked about within AGC of Washington, have you been able to gain any national traction with this or, or share that? Yeah, uh, actually, that's a great question. I'm I'm really thrilled. I might have badgered the uh, National Safety Committee to allow me to start a task force on mental health nationally. And we just recently had our first meeting and it was very, very well attended and we got a lot of great dialogue out of it. In fact, I, I walked away with, I think, 12 pages of notes from that meeting of just oh. a lot of sharing. And our goal is to create a national consortium of all of the best practices, all of the different resources, training materials, toolbox talks, all of that stuff, and put it in one place. So every AGC chapter across the country and every AGC member across the country can access that. And even better is that it'll be open source. So everyone, doesn't matter if you're an AGC member or not, you can just grab a hold of that. And really the impetus behind that is also to make sure that Rather than have you go and reinvent the wheel and create a toolbox talk on a subject and have to waste that energy, if that 
tool already exists, then your energy can go be spent on having these conversations with people or, you know, maybe developing other content or having thoughtful conversations with people instead. And so it's, it's been a passion of mine to just take as much work out of this as possible and make it workable for the people that are willing to actually invest in these conversations. So it's snowballing right now. And that is an awesome, awesome feeling. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be kind of the tip of the spear of, of some of these initiatives. That is so exciting. I'm like beaming right now. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Well, and I think it's, it's coming at such a great time because we're coming out of, uh, out of the pandemic, right? And things are so different. Uh, mental health issues are so much exaggerated at this point, And it's such a diverse view of mental health. Yeah. Is that playing into what yeah. you're working through? Yeah, and- absolutely. I have said for, for many months now that the pandemic has actually been a great equalizer for us in this advocacy because before the pandemic, it was a little bit harder to talk about not being okay and to say, you know, hey, I'm struggling, you're struggling, whatever. But the pandemic brought about a scenario where we are all not okay on some level. We can all acknowledge that life has been rough for a long time now and we've had to adapt. And what we thought was gonna be a sprint turned out to be a marathon. Some of us maybe didn't have the best coping skills going into it and have had to either develop those or struggle through. I think that it has helped us normalize the conversation and it has allowed us to open doors that I think probably wouldn't have opened previously. I always try to think of mental health as like physical health. Everyone has that bad knee or like the sprained ankle or, you know, everyone's got their thing. Mm -hmm. And this pandemic has really car crash or something like that, or a specific type of injury that everyone was affected in a similar way at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it created more of a conversation and connection between just mental health in general or just health in general. And so I think that there is a positive side to it in this aspect. And we wouldn't judge somebody for going to the doctor for a broken arm. No, because you can see and, it. Yeah. <laughs> and and we wouldn't judge somebody for having cancer and needing treatment. So we also shouldn't judge people that want or need therapy. We shouldn't judge people that need to go through treatment or take medication for their mental health. Because at the end of the day, if they're healthy, they're operating at their maximum potential, which if they're on your team and they're operating at their maximum potential, it means you're also safer to operate at your maximum potential. But also your team is benefiting from having somebody that is fully present and fully capable of doing their work. You know, because that's the other thing. If someone's struggling, maybe being around them isn't the most pleasant thing, you know, and, and it can make other people uncomfortable. So if we're looking out for one another, we're also making the workplace a lot more comfortable for all of us. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also think of it like going back to the health, your physical health, you get the flu and you get over it and then the flu can come back or you can get another type of sickness. Like it's not like if you get through one thing, it's not to say that you're never going to have something like that again. It's a very fluid thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're more sick than others and sometimes you need to see a doctor, you know, and so, and those are all very normal things in society and just normalizing it for your mental state is a really great thing that I'm really excited that you're doing. I would love to hear You mentioned these eight steps or eight resources that you worked on during your graduate program, and I'm hoping you can kind of dive into those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think that I want to, again, say I approached this research using the same principles that I've used with our safety 
consulting that we do through AGC of Washington, where, you know, if I take the time to learn a subject and create a resource for you, then not only am I doing that for you, but I'm doing it for the rest of the 600 employers, right? And so we're not wasting efforts and everybody becoming completely proficient at one particular subject, but we're creating resources that are very easy and plug and play. So essentially the research project was to uh, survey construction employers throughout the Pacific Northwest, and it was pretty specific to the Pacific Northwest. And because we involved uh, surveys that had to go through a human subjects review board and all of that stuff to make sure I wasn't asking unsafe questions yeah, and sure. all that jazz. But we basically asked from frontline workers all the way to executives, including labor partners, including safety directors, HR managers. The survey asked questions with regard to what things are most effective? Have, what things have you tried and found to be most effective with regard to mental health conversations in the workplace? And then the second part of that question was for individuals, whether it's the frontline worker or the HR manager or whoever, what of these options that you've tried were most inspirational? What actually what actually spurred you to invest in your mental health? What spurred you to take action? What was something that really got to the heart of the matter for you and made you feel like, okay, this isn't something I'm going to ignore today. And so that was part and parcel because I didn't want to just say, oh, here's the best practices that employers have tried and, you know, nobody laughed them out of the room, but rather what is something that an employer has tried and it's been successful and that workers actually would want to hear about? You know, we oftentimes in safety, we develop programs and policies and procedures and we roll them out and we think we've done good work and it hits the field. And the first thing that the person does in the field when they see that is start laughing because they're like, obviously this person doesn't understand my job. Obviously this person doesn't understand the nature of work here or the progression of work here. And so it's, it's kind of nonsense. And so I didn't want it to fall into our most important stakeholders hands and be worthless to them. I wanted it to be something that was inspirational, that that challenged them to think outside of maybe how they've been thinking about mental health. So from that survey, we had 125 respondents um, in a two-week period, which is relatively unheard of in a research project, I'll tell you. So that was a thrill to see that many responses because it meant that our results are statistically valid. And it means that our results are publishable, which means that we actually have data now for the construction industry that can be used for this purpose. So we identified the top eight, the top eight things that you can do as an employer for mental health. And really it comes down to, I'm not gonna go through all eight, but it comes down to having training, not only in understanding mental health, but having training in how to de-escalate a situation if you find somebody in crisis or you suspect that somebody might need help. Uh, it comes down to making sure that resources are accessible and resources can look like um, your employee assistance program through work, um, your insurance offerings. What does your insurance actually cover? How many visits can you have a year and what is that going to cost you? What other hotlines and phone numbers are available to you? Um, and we're really close to having a national crisis hotline for mental health in our country, which is really exciting. It'll be like 911 only for mental health. Really just like making sure that those resources are available and making sure that the resources are available upstream of someone needing intervention, right? We, we oftentimes are very reactive in our industry. 
And so making sure that those resources are available upstream before someone is in crisis so that they're getting help. Normalizing the conversation and reducing stigma is also really important and part of that eight steps. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that, whether it's through toolbox talks or signage or, um, you know, encouraging folks to do their own mental health assessments. And then just continuing to involve mental health in the conversations that you have every day so that it remains top of mind for everyone, but also so that those who are struggling don't have to feel alone. They don't have to feel like they're facing this issue on their own. And then lastly, I think the most important thing to me out of the best practices guide was that everything that I put together there's samples and examples and resources that are free and available. So you don't have to go reinvent the wheel. You can literally take that best practices guide and be like, oh, look at all these free resources that we can just use and share with our people immediately today. Because, you know, another thing that we do in our industry is we say, oh, we're going to do such and such, or we're going to be really involved in whatever new initiative there is going on. But we don't immediately have all those resources accessible and sometimes we have to develop them. And so I just really wanted to take all of that work out of it and just make it almost plug and play. So, so far it's been very well received all over the place. It's been all over the country actually in the last few months delivering a summary of that best practices guide and helping employers understand how to truly just deploy it within their organization. And um, it's pretty, pretty exciting time to, to get to be a part of that. Yeah. And, and you know, what it sounds like it, and from what I've heard in the field, um, especially with the big push over the last, you know, 20, 30 years with safety is that, oh, some suit in the headquarters is, is telling me to do this, right? And, oh, you know, my manager is reading his book. And, you know, th this is something that comes from real life experience and comes from a lot of discussion and, and people's stories and, and uh, is built through uh, relationships, right? And, and developed that way. Yeah. Yeah. Relationships is the foundation of what we do, because at the end of the day, the work is the work, but we're all still human beings. And who I am as a human being is who I am at home and who I am at work and during my commute and all the other times. And so you've got to be OK with who you are as a person, as a human being, and be able to bring that goodness to work every day and be able to look out for the goodness in other people every day. And um, so it is it's so much more than just a compliance thing. It's really about, you know, showing your humanity and being willing to be a, a person. And I think historically in any profession, but most notably probably in construction, we've done a lot of work to take the humanity out of what we do. And we've really removed that human aspect. So it's really refreshing to see us kind of spinning the table a little bit and getting back to connecting as human beings and just talking about how we treat one another and how we look out for one another. And so that's a really exciting part of the work that I've been doing. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things I'm personally really curious about is, you know, we're talking about being OK with ourselves and, and um, you know, being a resource for yourself, but being a resource for your coworker and, you know, accepting that vulnerability. You know, if my if my coworker comes to me with a, something vulnerable and intimate, how, how do I react to that? What uh, what would you say to that? I think that there's some important things to remember. The first one in responding to anybody that's in crisis you asking them if they're considering suicide is not going to somehow populate their brain with the idea that, oh, maybe they should go harm themselves. And so it is important to confront that potential. It's important to uh, make space for that. It's also important just on your day to day interactions with people. When you ask someone how they are, stick around for the answer. Mm -hmm. Don't don't be like, 
oh, you know, I, well, I checked in with him. I asked him how he was and he said, oh, fine. And he, you know, off we went, you know, stick around for that answer and, and be willing to listen. I think that showing empathy for people's situation, even if it's not something that you identify with, some appropriate responses. If someone says that maybe they're going through a divorce or their dog passed away or their mom has cancer, you know, you don't, you don't have to own that. You don't have to own their problem or their struggle, but you can offer empathy. You can ask them if there's some resources that you can provide. You know, just a, a nice thing to say to someone is, that must be really hard. I can understand why that might be a real struggle for you right now. You're validating that they're having feelings. You're showing care and concern, but you don't have to own it. It's not your problem just because you listen to it. And then ask them point blank, are you in a position where you might be considering hurting yourself? And if so, here's an appropriate way to respond to that is, you know, you may not feel comfortable calling the suicide prevention hotline. You may not be comfortable calling and asking for a mental health appointment, but you know what? How about this? I'll call on my phone, on speakerphone, and I'll sit here with you and we'll start that conversation together so you don't have to do this alone. And giving a person an opportunity to get help that feels a lot less confrontational. You've removed a barrier for them because as crazy as it sounds, it takes so much strength, especially if you're struggling, to pick up a phone and call somebody and say, I'm not okay. That is hard. That is really hard to do. And you think, especially if you're in that level of emotional, psychological pain, you think maybe nobody cares. So being that one person that's willing to say, you know what, I will sit with you and let's make this call and know that this is confidential. It's not going to cost anything. And these people are trained professionals that are going to hook you up with resources that will help you now and will help you into the future. And I'm doing this not because I have to, but because I care about you as a human being and I see you're struggling and this is a simple thing I can do. Another thing that's really important when we talk about suicide prevention and we encounter someone that is in crisis is to remove the danger, remove their ability to harm themselves. Number one cause is usually self-inflicted gunshot wounds. We also have strangulation, like hanging, and then another cause is overdose on pills or drugs. And so if you can remove the danger, you are helping to ensure that person sticks around long enough to get the help that they need. I know that when, when we talk about this, a lot of times people will get a little turfy over the idea of someone taking away their guns. Mm -hmm. Especially, you know, in our industry, we've got a lot of hunters, we've got a lot of avid outdoorsmen. So when I say remove the danger, it also can mean taking that person away from the danger, keeping them occupied somewhere safe or supervised until the situation can get handled by professionals. So it doesn't mean you go to their house and you take their guns away from them. It doesn't mean you go to their house and you rifle through their cabinets and take away all their Tylenol. Tylenol is, I didn't know this until getting into this work. Tylenol is something that a lot of individuals have used as, as a mechanism of self-harm because we can get it in, in ample quantities. You know, you can go to Costco and buy a giant bottle of Tylenol. Nobody stops you from doing that. Yeah, I think it was on the radio this morning. I heard that yeah. overdoses on Tylenol, yeah. over the counter Tylenol yeah. is uh, up right yeah. now. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so I say all that to say you don't you don't have to go into their space and take something from them. It's not necessarily about taking something from them. It's about keeping them safe from the danger. And so, if you can, you know, in any way 
prolong their conversation with mental health professionals and, and get them connected to help to get them stabilized and get a treatment plan and get an action plan for them so that they feel confident in their own ability to walk forward on that path with their therapists or their medical professionals, you're doing them a huge favor. Just A, in showing them that they're not alone and B, in getting them the right resources to help them. You're not going to cause someone to go harm themselves by asking them directly, have you thought about suicide? Is that something that's on your heart right now? Because if so, I know a phone number we can call and and I'd be happy to sit with you and make that phone call with you. It's uncomfortable, but I guarantee you 100% certainty that that conversation and offering that person help in that moment is a lot less uncomfortable than knowing that you had an opportunity to have that conversation with them and then the next day don't show up to work. You know, as somebody that has investigated fatalities, as somebody who has lost friends to suicide, there's a lot of what ifs that'll play through your brain. And those are the things that keep you up at night. And those are the things, you know, at the end of the day that we all will suffer from if we don't have the uncomfortable conversation. There's lots of different training resources. The University of Washington has a program called Forefront for Suicide Prevention. And they have a training program called the Learn Method that really talks you through de-escalation. And that's one of the resources that's available in the best practices guide that I wrote. Open source material that, that teaches you how to do it. You can even order pocket cards or make your own pocket cards that explain the process of how to listen and how to engage with someone that might be struggling and how to get them the help that they need. And we are fortunate. We're fortunate that we have hotlines and all of that stuff. But if we're doing a really good job of this, we're catching people upstream before they need us to have a de-escalation or an intervention. We're catching them and we're getting them resources and empowering them to make healthy choices for themselves before they're in a, a mode of crisis and needing us to intervene on their behalf. And looking through those resources before you feel like you need them, I think is also really important because you never know when a loved one or someone that trusts you can come to you and need you in a crisis mode and just to remember, I reviewed that, you know, a few months ago or a year ago and have some type of baseline, like I know where to go or at least a few things I can pull that, like those things will be so helpful if and when that does happen, so. Yeah, and you know, this, while this is a, a workplace related conversation that we're having, this isn't just our workplace that is impacted by it. And our young people are having the hardest time probably we've ever had for young people in our world right now. And certain groups of of our youth are dying at a much higher rate than they ever have of suicide. And so being poised to have these conversations can pay dividends, not just in the workplace, it can pay dividends elsewhere. And, you know, the other thing is, I, I have to say, you mentioned it, Knowing, knowing how you're doing and taking a mental health assessment, like that's probably the best thing. If, if anybody listening to this conversation today is thinking, all right, this is a lot of information to take in. What's the one thing? What's the one thing? I would say the one thing that I would encourage you to do is to take a mental health assessment for yourself. First and foremost, you can't fix something if you don't know what it is. You can't get better if you don't quantify things. And I've taken a bunch of different mental health assessments just to kind of get a feel for how they work. And I will tell you, every one of them is very eye-opening and helps me 
evaluate where I'm at and where I want to be in my life and take better care of myself for sure. But also if you are brave enough to take a mental health assessment and find out what's going on with yourself and really engage in the results of that assessment, it also helps you be ready to engage when you find somebody that might be struggling. It helps you encourage someone else to say, hey, I took a mental health assessment and I found out that I have anxiety and whatever, or I took a mental health assessment and I learned some stuff about myself. You don't even have to tell people what you found out, but just I learned stuff about myself that I that were blind spots to me. I didn't realize was going on and now I can address them. And here's the ways that my life has improved because I addressed those issues. We every year get annual physicals and we find out what our blood pressure is and we find out what our cholesterol is and all those things. Why would we not? find out what's going on in the old ticker and get to addressing those issues too. It helps, but it also improves your quality of life by a huge margin when you can acknowledge, sometimes it's about owning your own nonsense too, but when you can really look and reflect on all of that, you're poised a lot better to have great conversations with people that might need it. Where, where do you, how do you take that assessment? Where do you, where do you find that? Yeah. So uh, there, my, my favorite one, my favorite one is mantherapy.org. It is a tongue-in-cheek look at mental health, which I love and I think actually helps reduce some of the self-stigma that may come with looking into mental health. Um, They use a comedian and he kind of walks you through some funny things with regard to mental health. I think a couple times in there he says mental health can't be fixed with duct tape. So again, it really addresses kind of the cultural norms of construction in a lighthearted way. But the beauty of it is it walks you through this assessment and immediately pairs you with resources that might be applicable to your particular situation. You might not want to go sit face-to-face with a therapist and bury your soul. That might not feel comfortable to you. In fact, it doesn't feel comfortable to a lot of people, and that's normal for that not to feel comfortable at first. But mantherapy.org and some of these mental health tools will help you at least be able to, in a non-confrontational way, right? You can sit on your phone at home. You can sit in your truck on, you know, your iPad and go through man therapy on your phone and access information and nobody has to know. Nobody knows that you're having these conversations or that you're looking into this. So you don't have that that same level of vulnerability and the extreme bravery. Like I said, if you're struggling, it takes a lot of bravery to look somebody in the face or pick up the phone and say, I'm not okay. But using these tools, these mental health assessment tools, it really removes that obstacle for you. You don't have to do any of that. You just walk through a simple online test and there you go. There's also betterhelp.org is a great tool and it's an app-based therapy program. There's also another one out now called Cerebral. And both of those can be used with or without insurance and give you an opportunity to get therapy from your phone. So you don't have to go into an office and you don't have to go through that uncomfortable like, oh, well, I'm sitting in a waiting room with other people getting therapy. So they know I'm getting therapy. You know, they know that I'm talking to a counselor. It's all done remotely through your phone. And in fact, a lot of insurance carriers are moving towards telehealth for mental health, which is fantastic. A great byproduct of the pandemic is a lot more providers are learning ways to offer their services more conveniently. So, you know, not only do you not have the stigma, you don't have to drive somewhere to go get therapy. You can literally sit in the comfort of your home. Yeah, I've used that BetterHelp and uh, yeah. it's super easy. Yeah. It's so easy to use. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I also have used BetterHelp and having the ability to email my therapist, like what? And then I can I can take however much time I need to unload what I'm thinking and I get a response and I don't have to feel like, oh, I'm up against a time clock, like, oh, I'm, I've used up my hour or whatever. It's just I can free flow what I'm thinking and feeling, which you don't have to look somebody in the face and tell them what you're thinking and feeling. You can type it all out. It's almost like having a journal, but it's backed by a professional that's yeah. going to give you some good insights and some help. Yeah. Yeah. Just journal, send it and then have them assess what's going on and then tell me what's going on and how to fix it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So amazing. And and what, um, what, you know, we talk about like therapists and whatnot, but what constitutes a professional, you know, if I'm, I'm ready to play, I'm at the point where I say, Hey, I need some help. What am I looking for? Um, I would say, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different avenues for professional help, you know? psychotherapists, you can even talk to your regular medical professional. You know, if you're in getting your annual physical or you're in because you got rotator cuff issues or whatever, you can mention to your medical professional that that you would like some help with regard to mental health. And they can make proper referrals to you based on what you're stating your your concerns are mantherapy.org also gives you links to finding that you can look through your insurance uh, networks for mental health professionals counselors therapists you know there's a lot of different names and different designations and it really fluctuates depending on what your needs are but I think that sometimes our best therapists are our family and friends and we might rely on them sometimes for for heavy stuff as well talked about journaling I think that that's another helpful tool to get feelings out. I know me personally, a lot of stuff that I'm going through presently, the things that keep me up at night, I have learned that if I don't just sit down and write that stuff down and get it out of my head, mm-hmm. that it's going to keep me up. But if I actually, and weird as it may be, typing it out on an iPad or a phone isn't the same experience for me. It may be for others, but for me personally, I get a better relief from the actual act of holding a pen in my hand and writing it out on paper and being able to organize it however I want and write it in whatever space on a page that I want and circle things and do whatever that. So just writing certain things down and getting them out of your head gives you the ability to clear some of that space that's being occupied by circular thoughts and clearing that. But that was a very long-winded answer to say. Um, <laughs> when you're looking for help, help can come in a lot of different forms. Help, help doesn't have to be necessarily clinical help. But talking to someone who is trained better than I, such as calling the suicide prevention hotline or the texting the text line, they can get you in contact with professionals that really uh, meet your needs. But those mental health assessment tools can also lead you to good resources for help. And, you know, uh, a lot of times it's also just about... um, you know, a lot of us struggle with depression and anxiety. Those are very common issues in our industry. And learning healthy coping and resilience techniques is really important. So um, taking time to take care of yourself, practice good breathing, practice good eating, practice getting enough sleep, which is really hard to do in our industry. I totally yes. acknowledge that. But doing the best that you can to practice good, healthful things for yourself, staying hydrated, those things all will pay dividends. It may not seem like it at first and it seems kind of stupid. Like I've already got to pay bills and drive to work every day and work all day and, you know, take care of my kids and my pets and my spouse and, you know, make sure that I'm getting regular service on my truck and all these things. But I also have to 
feed myself well and I have to drink water and I have to take vitamins and I have to exercise. And yes, you, you really do. You, you really do. And at the end of the day, you are absolutely worth that investment because when you do those things for yourself, you get better in the process and it helps you with coping with life's inevitable curveballs. So definitely make those investments as well. I will always remember one thing that you said to us during your presentation. You said, everything in life is temporary, the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. What are you choosing to focus on? And I don't know, like, I I guess it makes so much sense. I just had, the way you said it, I was like, whoa. Well, and when you're, when you're spent, when you spend your time on the temporary bad stuff, you're actually taking away from the good stuff that is also temporary. And I don't know, maybe I'm a, I'm an optimist or whatever, but I, I definitely try to keep focused on, on those good things because those are the bucket fillers. Those are the ones that help get us through the, the hard times. So you might as well, you get to choose anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think my, my grandfather used to say, and I've, I've heard it by a lot of other folks, um, choose your hard. Everything in life, there's going to be some pros and cons, some easy things, some hard things. So choose the hard. If you're, if it's going to be hard anyway, you might as well choose the hard that's going to make your life better instead of worse. That kind of relates to just something I do to self-assess where I'm at mentally is, have you heard of the acronym TVAR? TVAR. It's, so it's thoughts equals or lead to feelings, which lead to actions, which lead to results. And so you know, it's like the way you think about things lead to how you feel about things, which, you know, encourage you to act on things, which like lead to results. And so that's a pattern that I've just found in life is very true. And so that's just some way that I self-assess just, you know, very informally with myself. If there's, you know, if I'm thinking certain things that I am like, why am I, you know, why is this coming up for me? It just is able to stop me in my tracks and just help you walk it back. Yes, exactly. So, well, and it's, you know, it's funny that you, um, bring that up because I was just thinking about this. I was talking to one of my kids earlier this week. Um, sports coaches in high school always tell you on game day, you dress up. Mm -hmm. Why do you dress up on game day? Oh yeah. Cause when you look good, you feel good. When you feel good, you play good. Same thing. If you're, if, and that is a form of self care, right? Taking the time to get yourself showered up and look neat and presentable and feel good about yourself, you know, that pays dividends. So it, it makes sense that whole logic of what you're thinking about, what you're feeling leads to your results. Absolutely. 100% it does. Yeah, and I yeah I can draw a parallel to something we ask our, uh, our, our, our people to do every day is to go on site and visualize your work. What are you building? You know, in your in your first walk of the day, you know, you're visualizing what you're building and, you know, there's going to be some hiccups and maybe you don't build it or maybe it changes what you build. But it's an important part of the process. Right. And we ask our employees to do that every day. Yeah. And if you're thinking about the work at hand and being intentional about those thoughts, then you actually are more connected to the part of your brain that helps you with problem solving. Uh, this is terrible. It sounds like great advice coming from somebody who wings it through all of life, like fly by the seat of my pants. But um, when you are intentional, that leads to better outcomes because your your thoughts and your focus is on the process at hand and the results rather than, you know, the 87 other things that could be swirling around in your brain. Yeah, just being present in the moment. Yeah, and if things don't go my way, what are uh, what are some actions to, to cope with that and, and move on from that? 
Well, I think <laughs> I think Kelsey kind of hit it a little bit in the sense that every disappointment in life is temporary. Yeah. Every situation uh, is temporary. And, you know, my life has been a good testament to, for what I'm about to say in the sense that sometimes those disappointments, sometimes those curveballs lead you on the best detours in life. Yes. I had a daughter in 2007. I lost two pregnancies, thought that I was now going to deal with infertility and was thinking that the journey for us was over and instead ended up having to have surgery and the very next month, boom, I'm pregnant and I'm having triplets. (laughs) And so as much as that was a shocker and scary and overwhelming and certainly not the outcome I was aiming for, right? Like nobody wakes up one day and was like, okay, today is the day I'm going to get I'm going to, I'm going to have some triplets. So, um, so that was not, that was not like the the goal, (laughs) but in that sense, as much as that has challenged me, as much as that wasn't the outcome that I was aiming for, I couldn't be more thankful for the journey and I couldn't be more proud of where we are as a family and how wonderfully healthy and amazing my kiddos are. So being able to embrace those things that look like not the outcome we were aiming for being able to embrace that, be nimble, be flexible, because here's the thing. As soon as you can accept that life is going to throw you curveballs, you are ready for curveballs and you're going to catch them. But for anybody that's played baseball or softball and it is coming at you and you're not expecting it, you are not ready. And when you're not ready, you don't have the right footing. You're not going to do your best play when you're not ready. But if you are already eyes wide open to the fact that life is going to throw you these weird curveballs every once in a while, you're ready and it's going to land in your lap and you're going to make, you're going to be better poised to make the best of it. Not saying that that's always going to be the case, but you're definitely better poised for that. And so accepting those, those challenges. And for me, when I was going through infertility and pregnancy loss, the way that I coped the best was I had to get out of the headspace of poor me and it's not happening for me. And, you know, woe is me, but rather, what is this teaching me? You know, I jokingly told a lot of friends, I am an inherently impatient person. When I want something, I want it now. I want it in the way that I expect it. And I need it on my timeline. And that experience taught me so much about the fact that I'm not always in the driver's seat. I don't always have ownership in how something lands in my lap and that I can still make the most of it and that I can still enjoy the heck out of whatever the outcome ends up being. So yeah, it was a great learning lesson for me. It's still a learning lesson every single day, (laughs) every single day, multiple times a day. Um, but, (laughs) but yeah, being, being, um, being open to, to whatever life has to throw at you and learning how to reframe into, you know, what do I get to do instead of what do I have to do? And I, I, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but I've, through the pandemic, I've turned to social media more to get a hold of friends or whatever. And people post their best life on social media. And so many times I find myself kind of being like, oh, woe is me because I got all these troubles. And John's over, you know, living his best life in the woods and, you know, or somebody's traveling. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh, man. But yeah. I, I find myself so often having to take a step back and saying, look, they're only posting their best life. Yeah. You're seeing their highlight reel. Yeah. And you're living your your reality. And comparison, 
I can't even stress that enough. Comparison is a thief of joy. As soon as you start comparing your life to others, you're, you, the only possible outcome in that comparison is that it, in some way you are going to feel as though you don't measure up. Either that or you're going to have a massive superiority complex and be a jerk about it. And either way, not good. Lose, lose. Not good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stick to TikTok and, and all the funny, you know, goat videos. Yes. Right. You know, fainting goats on TikTok. If, if you need a, a helpful hint on, like, if you need a good laugh, fainting goats on TikTok. Um, <laughs> That's great. I'm totally going to look it up. Yeah. Mm. Going with coping is resilience. So I'm wondering, like, how do you become more resilient? Are there steps you can take or is that just a life thing that throughout more you just get better at it yeah it's kind of like um you know when you're you're in high school and you're applying for your first job and the job advertisement says experience required and you're like well how do i get that experience unless you'll hire me right um so a lot of resilience comes from from personal experience the way that you can build resilience is to stare challenges in the face instead of aiming for the comfortable life aim for the challenge in that not only do you grow as a person but you also grow in your confidence in your ability to handle situations so i would say the best advice i have for building resilience is to challenge yourself and to do things that you think are impossible case in point obviously i have triplets and and an older daughter and in 2019 so before the pandemic i started on my master's degree and i was like oh this is going to be so hard And then, of course, the pandemic hits and I'm a safety professional in construction during a pandemic whose four children have just been sent home from school to do online learning. (laughs) And I remember at one point I was like, this is impossible. Like, this is literally it cannot be done. It's it cannot be done. And here we are. We all survived. I graduated and my kids are, you know, they're doing great and life is looking a lot different now. So you got to sometimes have the positive self-talk of like, okay, this is a challenge, but this challenge is helping me grow. And this too shall pass. Yes. Yes. Probably. That's probably my next tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. (laughs) Pretty good. And how do we know when it's too much stress? What are are some red flags to say like, hey, I, you know, this is beyond what I, I can, you know, maybe I can convince myself I can do it, but this is beyond what I need to do. Yeah. So... Your mental health, whether you choose to acknowledge it or not, has physical manifestations. So paying attention to your body, paying attention to um, where you carry your stress. Um, Some people carry it in their neck and shoulders. Some people carry it in their stomach and they like have stomach issues when they're really stressed. Some people uh, that get migraines have stress triggered migraines. A lot of people clench their jaw or their teeth. So paying attention to your physical cues, what are your physical manifestations of stress? Because sometimes your body will tell you before you cognitively realize that you are under a lot of stress. So that would be one area of paying attention to like the physiological signs. Also your sleep patterns. If you have a sleep tracker, I encourage you to, to, yeah. Or a ring. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you have a sleep tracker, I encourage you uh, to check in with that periodically and just see what your sleep patterns are. Because when you're under stress, a lot of times you don't sleep as well. Your, Your sleep is a little bit more fitful and those kinds of things. And then also just check in with yourself periodically throughout a day or throughout a week and be like, what's really bothering me? Where am I at? What things are going on around me that are making me feel anxious or frustrated or... Are you losing your temper over a little stuff? 
Because when your fuse gets shorter, obviously it's because you, you're feeling some overwhelm somewhere and you're not coping with that overwhelm. So for me, as someone who battles anxiety and PTSD, I struggle sometimes the oddest places. I struggle sometimes in like Costco and grocery stores where it gets really loud. Those things overwhelm me. And it's the funniest thing because I'm, I'm not a quiet person. I listen to loud music. Mm-hmm. I talk loud. I'm not like, so it's, it's funny that some certain stimuli will, will get you. And, and for me, I always know when I start feeling that way, it's because there is something underlying that's making me feel the overwhelm and the stress. And so this other thing over here is triggering me. And I'm so busy worried about the fact that it's loud in Costco right now that I'm not realizing that the reason why all those feelings are happening is because of something else that's upsetting me or, or distracting me. So being able to do those kind of check-ins with yourself, again, mental health assessment tools will help you with that. They'll help you figure out what some of your triggers might be. Being your own investigator of why you feel a certain way and yeah. not your own critic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So don't don't have any shame or guilt for feeling a certain way. Yeah. Like you're it's triggered somewhere. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's okay. As long as you figure out what this, what the cause is and, and work on, on a solution. Yeah. I think my red flag is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm too stressed, I'll just forget what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, that forgetfulness, I, I struggle with that a little bit too. And the, the writing stuff down for me really helps. Um, the sad part is that sometimes I use sticky notes and that doesn't uh, help. Um, <laughs> so I do the same and I'm, I'm like, gonna, yep, no. Nope. been getting better. I, in college, I used to write stuff on my hand all the time. And just recently I caught myself doing that and I was like, whoa, whoa, there's something's not right here. Yeah. Cause I shouldn't be having to write something on my hand. Like I, I have a smartphone now for crying out loud. Like Old I can, habits. I can yeah. put it in a calendar and it will literally remind me. I don't know why I wrote it on my hand, yeah. but okay. Yeah. <laughs> it works. Yeah. That's I just reverted back to the nineties. Like, Oh crap. <laughs> just write it on there. Just write it on my hand. I can't lose my hand. Yeah. You mentioned in your presentation with us, rest and recovery are not the same thing stopping something does not equal recovery. So I'm wondering what does equal recovery? Yeah, so I think that it's really important when we talk about self-care and rest and recovery, all these sound like lovely things. They sound great and yet we're not always that great at at practicing those things. And so self-care is really about so much more than, you know, a Calgon bubble bath and a glass of wine at the end of a long day, not saying that there's anything wrong with that because I've been known to to take a bath or two. Self-care is also about holding yourself accountable and forcing yourself to take care of yourself. I love to do this exercise when I do trainings on mental health in construction of how, how many of us have said, all right, I have four hours this afternoon that I don't have to do something, so I'm going to take a nap. And then we go and we lay down to take that nap and we take our cell phones with us and we scroll mm-hmm. through social media and then we put our phones down guiltily and are like, oh, I'm supposed to be taking a nap and I was on social media. And so then we make ourselves feel bad for being on social media. So we put our phone down and then we lay there and we think about the awkward conversation we had in an elevator last week or we think about how we probably spent too much money on whatever last week or whatever the case may be, you know, a project that didn't get done or a mistake that maybe you made at work and you are sitting there actively going through this process of beating yourself up. 
And so that's not rest and you're not recovering. In fact, you're digging the hole deeper by doing that. And so rest and recovery are really about, first of all, rest needs to be restful. I would encourage folks to use meditation tools. You can go on YouTube or Google sleep meditations or rest meditations. And it's literally somebody talking to you through a relaxation exercise. And, and that, that voice in your head is, is somewhat forcing you to stay engaged in that process and not in all that weird stuff you know, that you were trying to think about before. So I would encourage you to try a rest or sleep meditation. They're very, very helpful in getting you out of the circular thought process that can get you spiraling. And then recovery is really just that, you know, if you go and you work out really hard or you play sports, you've got to have that time for your muscle to regenerate. And we don't recover from emotional trauma unless we address that emotional trauma and treat it properly. And so rest is about really practicing a pause, thinking about being intentional again, like like intentional with our thoughts, being intentional with that time, even if you have to schedule it. And even if you have to tell everybody in your life, I'm not available on Thursday nights from 7 to 10 p.m. because I am I'm in rest mode, whatever you got to do, turn off, you know, turn off notifications on your phone. Whoa. Whoa, game changer, y'all. If you haven't done that, try it. Whoa, it's great. So like turning off notifications, actually physically putting your phone like in a cupboard or something and forcing yourself to be alone and, and resting. And then recovery is really about giving yourself grace through that period of rest and afterwards for your body to recover. Because again, mental stress and anguish will manifest itself physically in your body. So you, you've got to give yourself time to work through those feelings. Sometimes it's about sitting with those feelings and allowing them to be here, which we're not always good at. It's like sit with those feelings, let them be here. As soon as you let that feeling happen, you acknowledge its presence and you release it. You're actually letting that bad juju, the bad energy flow out of you. And you're not having, that sounded really, I don't know, hippy dippy maybe, but, um, but you're, you're, you're allowing that energy to come take up space for a minute, allow you to feel it and then allowing it to go. When we stuff those feelings, all we're doing is we're putting those feelings under pressure and holding on to them longer. Literally, that's what you're doing. When you feel sad or you feel jealous of your friend's better truck or whatever the case may be, and you're, you're sitting there and you're having these feelings and you're like, oh, I'm not supposed to feel that. I'm going to stuff it. You're adding pressure to it. You're telling yourself it's not a valid feeling. And then you're holding on to it longer because you haven't just let it be and released it. So I know that that sounds like a really simple way to practice rest and recovery, but that's really what it is. You are, you're letting the feelings come. You're letting them be what they are. You're not shaming yourself for having the feeling and then you're letting it go so that you have room to have better feelings in that space. So to me, that's what rest and recovery means. To me, it means respecting uh, the feelings and respecting the emotion that is inevitably going to come in life. Life is full of feelings. We're human. So I know my, uh, my fiance is going to be really excited to to listen to this podcast because I'm I'm just so terrible at at feelings with her. I think we all are to some extent. Good, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other day I found out my Fitbit uh, has like a breathe function. Yeah. And it tells me how to just breathe. <laughs> Holy cow. That thing just makes me mad. I'm like, don't tell me how to live my life. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm breathing. I know. Maybe I'm not breathing, but geez, leave me alone. <laughs> 
and it always comes at like the most inopportune time right like you've dropped something and it rolled under your car and you're bent over and you're like trying to pick it up (laughs) and then your watch is like breathe and you're like i will (laughs) after i pick this up leave me alone (laughs) well uh I want to leave our listeners with some resources, uh, some places to go and look and, um, you know, who to talk to. What do, what do you got to, to share for that? I know AGC of Washington is a good resource as far as the website. Yep. Yeah. So we actually have a website completely dedicated to suicide prevention and mental health in construction. Um, if you go to agcwa.com, that's our website and you can click over onto safety, safety department and we'll share the link obviously later as well. But, and that is being updated pretty regularly to include more information. So there's already on there is my best practices guide. There's already a fatal fact actually from Washington State Department of Labor and Industries. They do summaries of fatalities that have happened in our industry. And there's one that involves a construction supervisor taking his life on the job. Mm. And it has a ton of resource material there as well. And I think that that's another kind of takeaway from all of this is if we think for one minute that mental health and suicide prevention is not an on-the-job issue. It absolutely is. We, uh, we, in 2020, we actually lost six construction workers. Of the 16 that we lost in 2020, six of them were to dealing with mental health, um, whether it was drug overdose or suicide on the job. These are people that lost their lives on the job. And so, like I said, there's that fatal fact summary on our website, as well as some toolbox talks. And very soon we will have a sample company policy with all of the resources that I've been able to amass over the years, all the different articles, groups that are doing work here, free resources, assessment tools, all of that stuff, all in one helpful like boilerplate safety program that employers can can take. So, you know, employers can take that, but also as as an individual human being on this planet, you can flip through that and see all the resources that are available to you as somebody in our industry that might need help or support and you can take advantage of all of that. So, it'll be ready soon. Yes, and when it is ready, Northwest will post it on social media Yay. so everyone can see that. Yeah. Yeah, I think we want to spread the word uh, as, as through many venues as possible. You know, we're going to get out through Safety Week. Uh, we're going to do a lot of education. Um, we're going to make it a regular part of our toolbox um, and uh, weekly talks. One of the resources we have at Northwest Construction and other employers have we encourage employees to reach out about is the Employee Assistance Program. It offers resources like mental health sessions, life coaches, financial consultation, legal consultation, and just general help. Uh, Help you may need, maybe you don't need it, but it's available for you. So reach out to HR or your project manager to get the company code and access point to use the employee assistance program. Well, Mandy, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Mandy. This conversation has been great and we've learned a lot and we're just so happy that you were able to come and talk with us. It's been fun, and uh, I really appreciate you all making space for these kinds of conversations, and I think that it takes bold leadership for companies and individuals to invest in these conversations, even though, you know, at times they may be uncomfortable. You know, we're probably a lot more comfortable after this hour or so together than, than we were when we first started talking about mm-hmm. it, and and that's part and parcel to the nature of, of this subject matter, is the more we talk about it and the more we spend time with it, the easier it gets. 
and the more people that we're going to end up ultimately saving. So um, hats off to you both for doing this podcast. Hats off to Northwest for making space for this to happen and just the work that you all are doing to advocate, not just for your own like your own employees and your own team, but you know, we all get better when we all start having these conversations. So our industry is safer and better off because we're having these conversations. We appreciate you. Right yeah, back at you, you my friends. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a, I'm also a Central Washington alum. Woo-hoo. So shout out to Central Washington University for uh, educating in people that impact in the world. Yeah, uh, go Wildcats. <laughs> Besides. <Yeah. laughs> it's all right. All right, until next time.